Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Risto Mikkulainen, who is Vice President of Research at Sentient Technologies and a professor of computer science at University of Texas at Austin. Risto and I recently tried to connect at the O'Reilly AI conference in New York. Unfortunately, we weren't able to do an in-person interview, but we were able to get on the line together and uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation and I think you'll really enjoy it because we'll be talking about something we haven't talked about yet on the podcast and that is evolutionary algorithms. So Risto, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleased to be here. It's great to have you on. Uh, why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background? Okay. Yes. So I got my PhD and at UCLA 1990 and was working at the time on neural networks, which I've continued doing all my career, but got also interested in evolutionary algorithms about the same time uh, and have gradually drifted more in that direction. And especially into intersection of those two things. So we've been evolving neural networks uh, since the early 90s. And, and you can view that as one way of training neural networks in domains where you cannot really do other types of learning like deep learning, uh, supervised learning. So that's been my research focus. I've also, originally I did a lot of work in natural language processing with neural networks and then understanding the visual cortex with neural networks. Uh, most recently, this evolution-based work is focused on building robotic control, game characters, and uh, more recently solving problems in the real world uh, using, using this technology. Uh, and that's what I'm doing at Sentient. Uh, I'm on, on leave from UT Austin, have been for two years, trying to take the technology to the real world. And, and it's been a lot of fun. So tell us a little bit about what Sentient does and what the focus is there. Sure. Sentient uh, has been around actually for 10 years, although we came out of stealth only three years ago or two years ago. That's a and long time in stealth. Well, it uh, took a while to develop all the infrastructure. So initially, Sentient was doing uh, stock trading and still is doing stock trading as one of the one of the applications. It's a great first application because you don't need to have much customer support and other things like that. You just run your algorithms and, and they trade directly and make money. But it took a long time to build those algorithms and also build the infrastructure, the computing infrastructure. So evolution is one of those te technologies that requires a lot of computing power uh, to excel. And here at Sentient, we built that kind of a computing power, a distributed system across uh, the internet using, at that time, 2 million CPUs uh, to evolve stock traders. And, and that was uh, very successful, and it was a lot of fun to build that. That was the first product, and then we changed the course, or added another direction, rather, going to e-commerce, building intelligent interfaces to e-commerce. So there are two products there. One of them is Sentient Aware, which is a visual interface to catalog of products that, that understands what the user wants. It's more like a personalized assistant that you might find in Nordstrom or other fancy department store. You click on choices and the system will understand what it is that you're looking for and a couple of clicks will get you what you want. The other one is Ascent, Sentient Ascent, which is a way of using evolutionary computation to design web interfaces so that they are most effective. Uh, for instance, optimizing conversion rate on an e-commerce website is one of the okay. applications of that technology. So those are the three products. 
But behind, be, behind all that, we develop, we are technology companies, so we develop evolution computation methods, uh, deep learning methods, combinations of those, as well as surrogate optimization and backpack optimization uh, in, in various domains. So that's our technology pace. Okay. Is the, actually, I'll get back to that. Uh, you mentioned 2 million CPU cores. Are, is that via the cloud? Is that distributed? Are those in your own data centers? Yeah, that's interesting. This is like a grid machine, sort of like folded or uh, steady at, at home. home. Yes, okay. exactly. Uh, same idea, utilizing uh, freely available compute time. I mean, not freely available, we right. pay for it, but, but available idle compute time in around the world. And this is, I think, a really interesting proposition. And there's so much compute distributed now in people's uh, laptops, PCs, cell phones. And if we could harness that, we could do a lot of computing. But of course, things changed. That was, the CPUs were perfectly good in the first uh, several years when we were evolving stock traders. More recently, we evolved deep learning neural networks. And the need is a little different because they are trained on GPUs. So now we have to have mm -hmm. access to GPUs and, and the demographics has changed a bit. And this is a very rapidly changing space. It's also become very economical to buy a bunch of GPUs, thousands of them perhaps, and build your own center. So we are continuously looking for opportunities to harness computation, whatever form it is. But uh, we have expertise in, in both kinds of setups. Okay. And so is the company still using this highly distributed grid-like uh, infrastructure, or have you shifted to a, uh, an owned infrastructure? Yeah, we are still using it, and we are also exploring other ways of uh, getting the computation. They, are, they, they serve a little bit different purposes. One of them is very massively parallel and not necessarily that reliable, and that's good for some applications. And in others, you need more reliability. The uh, compute has to be accessible all the time, and it has to finish. <laughs> and therefore, you need different kinds of sources for compute, and we are pursuing several sources as a result. Hmm. Can you give us examples of the kinds of applications that work well and, and for each? Yeah, so for instance, stock trading is uh, very robust because we are evolving traders. And evolution in general, evolution computation in general is robust because you have a population of solutions and you are testing that population in a distributed fashion across the different compute sites. Uh, and if something goes wrong and you don't get back an evaluation of one of your candidates, that's okay. You have hundreds of other candidates. It's okay to lose one candidate or have it only part, be partially evaluated uh, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of noise in this evolutionary search process and it actually thrives on diversity and multiple alternatives. So it's not dependent on any single alternative or, or an accurate evaluation. It's based on evaluating a lot of candidates and many times and that you can do on a compute uh, source that's very unreliable. Now, if you are building a particular application based on, say, deep learning, you want that deep learning network to be very well built and very well trained and reliable. And sometimes that training will take uh, several days. Uh, so it has to be a reliable source so that you can get back that result of the training. Otherwise, you right. waste a lot of, lot of time on it. So, so that's right. where we need more, more reliable sources. Okay. Uh, and so is the company still working on financial services or did you migrate or pivot from financial services to the e-commerce solution? No, we're definitely working on trading as well. It's, uh, it's more like an AI-based hedge fund uh, than financial mm -hmm. services. 
And there we have expanded to different markets. So that part is growing and the algorithms have also evolved to some degree, but but the base is still to, to run a hedge fund using AI. So the traders okay. are automatic. <laughs> they actually are looking at the stock market and deciding what the trends are and what should be done and, and then to make those trades. Of course, there's in the end, there's a, a person also watching this with a hand on a red button in case something goes wrong. But, <laughs> but that, that almost never happens. I don't think right. it actually has happened in, in that urgency. But sometimes also the stock market is interesting that there might be something happening in a stock market. You can tell that now this is, this is not a usual situation. It's going haywire and we'll stop the trading and, and let it come back and become more normal. So there's a human in the loop, but, but it is interesting that AI can do much of this on its own. And are you trading your own book or are you working with other hedge funds and helping them trade? Yeah, currently trading our own funds and it's, uh, there's a plan to open it up uh, in the future okay. for investors. Interesting. I, you know, I wonder why, you know, if you've got that working, you know, it's kind of this perpetual money machine, right? Why even <laughs> bother with retail? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, in, uh, in, in the AI world and in the startup world and in the, in the Silicon Valley, it's always grow, scale, get more. And uh, this was a successful, is a successful technology. So now the question is, what else can you do with it? And uh, indeed, it's nice to have several different technologies and bases. Uh, and especially then because you, you start getting cross-pollination of them. So the second one we looked at was very different from evolution algorithms was deep learning and we found that we could use it to encode human preferences what humans perceive as similar and mm -hmm. visually and identify that this would be something that the retail industry could really use because retail is changing rapidly and, and fundamentally from the brick and mortar stores uh, we are changing into internet-based commerce uh, and this mm -hmm. is a really big change, but internet commerce is quite clunky still today. It's hard to find what you want uh, mm -hmm. in, the, in those web interfaces. And, and the reason that was pretty obvious was that you, you have to know what you're looking for and you have to know the keywords for those items that you're looking for. Right. And, and if you do, you may be able to find uh, to your satisfactory some product that you're interested in, but if you don't, it can be very frustrating. And as a matter of fact, we've done some tests on that. Typically, in an e-commerce site, in a week, 15% of the catalog is actually seen by the users because they have to go through these rigid uh, categories and, and keywords, and it's very hard to find different uh, variability or diversity in the, in the catalog. We identified very early on that this is actually something that could be done differently. We could use human-like perception of similarity, visual similarity. So if we're thinking of, say, a catalog of shoes or jackets or sunglasses, then a human can identify something that he likes or he or she likes very quickly by being presented a bunch of alternatives. This is the one I like the most. And then another set of candidates comes up. And these are now based on the first click. They are similar to the first click, but variation around that area. And now mm -hmm. you can click again. And it turns out in about seven clicks, you can find anything in the catalog, according to our, our, our evaluation. And mm -hmm. in that process the users actually see about 70% of the catalog each week. And this is oh, a wow. situation where everybody wins. As a, yeah. as a user, you have access to more variety and the e-commerce vendor will sell more to the catalog and the, and the manufacturers get their products out there for people to see. 
So it is just fundamentally a better way to access uh, e-commerce catalogs. And it's based on understanding human perception and training machines, training neural networks uh, to represent those similarities. Hmm. Uh, that sounds like a really interesting application. So both, well, actually, you said the financial services, you started with uh, applying evolutionary algorithms. And with, the, with this e-commerce application, the focus is more on deep learning. Exactly. Uh, is that the right way to think about it? Yes, that's exactly right. Maybe let's let's dive into evolutionary algorithms now. Tell us, you know, what you, you gave us a little bit of a taste of it earlier, but what does that mean? All right. So evolution, and you can see this as form of, or similar to reinforcement learning, where you do not get the correct answer to learn from. I mean, in deep learning and most of the machine learning applications that are out there, are based on these large data sets where uh, somebody has collected the data, this is a situation and this is the right uh, categorization or action at that situation. For mm -hmm. instance, you know, images and their classification, categorization, or speech and, and the transcription of the speech. And this is very doable and, and we have systems that have come up, Mechanical Turk and MyDAI and others who are now collecting and forming such data sets. And then systems like deep learning can be invoked to build models of, of those, those kinds of tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very powerful. But there's a lot of tasks in the world where those actual correct answers are not known. So, for instance, driving a car, a mobile robot navigating, playing any kind of game. You don't know what the, what the actual optimal answers are. Uh, mm -hmm. And in, in such domains, the learning is based on exploration. You try out things and see how well they work. In, in a big picture, this might be called reinforcement learning. You get reinforcement your actions. Now, right. reinforcement learning actually, as a term, refers to a category or class of algorithms that is a little different from evolution in sort of social or, or a traditional sense. They are mostly, those reinforcement learning algorithms are mostly based on value function approaches where you list all your actions and learn how good each action is in each state. And that's a different approach to solving a problem when you don't have gradients, when you don't have uh, supervised targets. Evolution is a different approach. The idea there is that you have a whole population of solutions and you evaluate each solution. And as in biology, those who evaluate well get to reproduce more and mm. generate offspring. And the offspring is somehow generated in various ways from the parents. You take an encoding of the parent, an encoding of another parent, and then you cross them over, just like in biology. So mm -hmm. there's some kind of a linear encoding as, at like DNA, and you can take part of that DNA from one parent and another part from another parent to form an offspring. And that means that you are combining properties of both parents into the offspring. And this is the fundamental idea of the evolutionary search. You are uh, you're trying to recombine components or schemas or building blocks, uh, they are sometimes called, to find better combinations of them. And there's another component which is important as well, uh, that's before mutation. You, yeah. Before you dive into that, I have a question about something you said about reinforcement learning. And that is, you said that the you know reinforcement learning is characterized by these value functions, and uh, in order to evaluate these value functions, we apply you know gradient-based approaches. And you said that in order to do that, we can only do that under supervision of some sort. And elaborate on that because we're typically applying, as you said, uh, reinforcement learning in what we think of unsupervised problems. Right. So supervised learning is 
is different from reinforcement learning. So that supervised learning means that we right. do have correct answers and we can calculate gradients. In reinforcement learning, we don't have those gradients. We don't have correct targets. So it's based on exploration. So in reinforcement learning, the agent will try out different actions and will eventually get an evaluation of how well those actions worked out. And then dynamic uh, programming is, uh, uh, incremental dynamic programming is typically used then to propagate that uh, reward back to the earlier actions uh, mm -hmm. and, and changing their value in, in this representation of how good each action is. So mm -hmm. it, is, it is not supervised. Things get a little confused because, confusing because this, in, in its purest form, this kind of value functional learning applies to a table of actions in a table of states. But that mm -hmm. is very limiting. So we need to be able to approximate a large number of actions and a large number of states. And that means that a lot of times we use a function approximator and then mm -hmm. use gradient descent to build that fun function approximator using mm -hmm. the propagated values as targets. So we use gradient descent as a way of generalizing reinforcement learning, but the information for reinforcement learning comes from the outcomes of these exploration uh, episodes. Right, right. And one of the challenges with reinforcement learning is that you are, it's the right way to articulate this, you're kind of weighing exploration and exploitation and your exploration tends to be focused around fixed paths and you don't really have a built-in mechanism to combine different exploratory directions. And, it, and that sounds like that's one of the advantages of evolutionary algorithms. Yes, yes, this is absolutely right. So there are, there are two main challenges for reinforcement learning. One of them is this large search space. Like I said, it works really well if you have a smaller space where you can enumerate all your actions and states. And, and it's difficult when uh, those grow uh, and become maybe continuous. And another problem is that it works well when your state contains all the information from the past. It's uniquely specified or exactly specified. Uh, if you have partially observable states, uh, then it becomes very difficult to learn using, using this kind of value function approach. And both of those are actually addressed if you evolve, uh, use evolution to construct neural networks in, in such tasks. So hmm. neural networks work very well when they are um, in, in continuous domains. You don't have to enumerate all the possibilities. They are already doing the function approximation. And, mm -hmm. this, and, and uh, regarding the second problem, you can evolve recurrent neural networks. And when you have recurrency, your entire sequence of actions that you've taken up to this state uh, is taken into account in making the next decision. And therefore, mm -hmm. it can disambiguate much of, the, much of the state ambiguity and therefore work better in and partially observable problems as well. So that is, that is true. You have to have a decision-making system such as a neural network as a base, but then you can evolve that neural network in order to get over these two, two challenges to reinforcement learning. One challenge to reinforcement learning is the issue of uh, reward attribution. Is that covered under the partially observable state issue, or is that a, a separate category of challenge? And how is that addressed by evolutionary algorithms? Well, they are related. And uh, so reward attribution, if you have a partially observable problem and you make a decision, part of the credit for that success for that decision depends on how you got to that state, those unobserved mm -hmm. variables. Uh, okay. So if you, if you have a system that takes into account 
all the actions that got you to that state, you are doing the credit assignment better and, and more accurately. So yeah, in that sense, they are related. Okay. So maybe, is there a way to, you know, granted that a podcast is is limited in its bandwidth, you know, not having a visual component here, but is there a way to kind of walk us through the, you know, the setup for an evolutionary algorithm and how it's applied to training neural networks? Sure. And I've been vigorously waving my hands here, which you haven't been able to see <laughs> all along. But so, yeah, the big, big starting point that's different from reinforcement learning is, is the population. So you have a collection of individuals, and typically it's 100, 200 maybe. In some cases, in different, different variations might be smaller. And, and so what is an individual? Each, yes, each of the in, in, in individuals represents a solution, a potential solution to the problem. Like in this case, in the simplest case, it could be a neural network. And it means all the weights and all the nodes, weight values and all the nodes and the structure of the neural network. Okay, so it's pre-constrained by architecture. You've defined an architecture for this target neural network and you're using the evolutionary algorithm to figure out its various parameters as opposed to evolve the network architecture itself. Well, that's the simplest way of doing it. But, but the most powerful evolutionary neural network systems actually evolve the architecture as well. Oh, really? Uh, you just have to have a representation that can be encoded into a, into a string, typically, or a tree, but most often a string, like DNA. So you have a DNA mm. representation of that solution, and it may include the weights on the connections, making include the hyperparameters like the uh, slope of the sigmoid or so, something like that uh, mm -hmm. and it may include the topology like how the graph is actually connected between mm -hmm. nodes mm -hmm. it's just an issue of how you encode it but the but the end result is that you will have some kind of a string representation or a tree in a, in a more general sense uh, mm -hmm. for each of the individuals for each of the neural network the solutions and now okay. you and now you have a population of them and then on that population you run an evolutionary algorithm. And there are many flavors of those. What I've been talking about is, is the genetic algorithm flavor, uh, John okay. Holland's uh, tradition. There are many others too. But, but that is the most closely associated with biology in that you take each individual, you test them in the task, you evaluate them in the task. And that's where the parallel computing comes in because you have a population, you can send each individual to a different machine across the uh, internet to be evaluated. And sometimes most of the time, the evaluation is the most computationally expensive uh, part of the algorithm because you may be driving a robot or you may be uh, doing stock trading or whatever it is mm -hmm. that you're doing. It takes time to evaluate. And that's really nice because evolutionary algorithms parallelize very well in that sense. Each individual can be evaluated separately. And then you get back their values, their fitness values, how well mm -hmm. they perform in the task. And now the entire population is associated, each one individual is in, associated with a fitness value. And you can find the best ones and you can find the worst ones. The worst ones you throw away and the mm -hmm. best ones you pair up so that you can do a crossover, as I mentioned earlier. And also the second component of evolution, the mutation. Crossover gives you new combinations of building blocks or schemas, uh, partial solutions. Mutation creates new ones because it's not necessarily, you usually initialize the population randomly, like random weight neural networks, but right. it doesn't guarantee that you have the weight in the right place when you need it. So mutation is a mechanism for creating that. Um, it's a random change in the weight value, a random change in the topology that happens on a low probability, about 2% or 4% or so as part of that evolutionary step. 
So you've taken your, your parents and you created their offspring, and that offspring then is used to replace those poor individuals that were thrown away. And that creates your mm -hmm. new population, a new generation. And then this process repeats. In this process, in essence, you are doing a parallel search in the solution space. Starting from your 100 initially random individuals, you gradually reward those that, are, that perform the best and you uh, perform more search in the areas where there's uh, better solutions. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's in parallel. So you're still not following just one potential kind of solution, but you are in parallel focusing on multiple potentially good solutions. And eventually, then you find some really good ones, and the algorithm focuses on, on refining that area and finding the absolute best in a smaller area around the best solution. That's mm -hmm. what ends up happening. And, and that's uh, evolutionary algorithm in a nutshell. As I said, there are many variations, and they're also interesting to talk about. But that, that principle of parallel search in a solution space, which is directed by these periodic evaluations in the real world, is, is the essence of the method. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like, you know, maybe perhaps not if applied to a deep neural network, but if applied to a more simple type of machine learning model, you know, essentially what we're doing is a, a search of the solution space that, you know, could be analogous to a grid search of hyperparameters. But in the evolutionary world, we're able to you know, we're able to constrain our search and as well as parallelize it. And so I'm imagining that, you know, from like a big O perspective, this is, you know, log, log n time as opposed to n or something like that with a, a grid search. Am I thinking about that the right way? Yeah, that's intuitively, I think that's correct. It's, of course, a different question of can we prove <laughs> such, such <laughs> right. results, but, but that is in essence what's happening. So it it is, it is uh, not laying all your eggs in one basket. It, it is uh, pursuing multiple alternatives at once. And it's then gradually uh, focusing the search where the most promise is. Whereas Gritchers is just brute force approach. You mm -hmm. spread your, all your individuals as wide as possible and find something in there. And they end up wasting a lot of time and, and also not necessarily finding the very best one because you are limited by the, by the grid. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, that you could think of it as more intelligent version of that much more mm -hmm. intelligent. It's actually sometimes amazing how efficient it can be. So we've done at Sentient a couple of demonstrations in a multiplexer domain, which is a very easy domain to solve symbolically, but it, you can create it into a, or turn it into a search problem. You have to find the right encoding of bits so that you get the right answers to, the, to any given address from your bit string. Now, the search space is huge in this case. It can be, and we've solved a 70-bit multiplexer, which the search space is 2 to the 2 to the 70th. It's a very large search space, and right. still evolution can find solutions quite quickly in uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of, of, of trials. You'll find solution in that, 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 that magnificently large space. Can you take a step back and elaborate on that problem and how it's applied or how it's used in practice? Right. Well... Multiplexer is it's a benchmark problem. It's not something that you would solve using evolutionary algorithm. It's only used mm -hmm. to illustrate how or, or evaluate the different algorithms and how it works, how, how, they, it. how well they work. The, you have a number of address bits and then you have a number of data bits. So that is your uh, individual. And then what you are learning is rules, how to map those address bits to a data bit. 
And that's what the multiplexer does. Given mm-hmm. an address, it gives you one of the data bits. So you can evolve it to solve that in various ways. You evolve rules, and, and the rules express that, okay, if you have this, this, and this bit in the addresses, then this is the output. Mm-hmm. So now the space that you're searching is the set of all, all rule sets. Uh, and that space is humongous, and we can calculate how large it is. This mm-hmm. is work done by John Cosa a long time ago, just to demonstrate how effective le- uh, learning algorithms can be, evolution learning algorithms can be. Uh, at that time, I think we were considering 11 multiplexer, which has a search base of 10 to the, I think it's 616. And and you can solve it by searching this sets of rules. And you, uh, in the rules, you have a certain way of identifying the input bits and then anding and, and oring them and so on, performing logical operations so that in the end you get the, um, the data bit. Uh, okay. And you can calculate how large that search space is, how many ways there are to combine these input bits, address bits, and, and the logical operations on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, you can estimate how large the search space is and how hard the problem is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 11 case, it's uh, 10 to the 616th, and and you know we expanded it to uh, two to the two to the seventieth, uh, and it still works. And that is, mm-hmm. I think, to me, is very amazing that <laughs> evolution can very quickly identify what actually works. Those right. those component solutions, those building blocks, and then put them together into a solution. When the search space is 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 huge, mm-hmm. uh, so that is power. But not everything is, of course, amenable to evolutionary computation. This B- happens to we, be the case. before we jump into that. You mentioned provability. Can you elaborate on the work that's been done there? For example, you mentioned in describing evolutionary algorithm that you kind of throw away the, you know, the worst performing, the worst performing models or parameter sets, and then you mate, if that's the right word, the the best performing ones, you know, has, is there formal proof that, you know, we're not that that's not susceptible to some local minimum maxima and you might get some better result by mating non-performers and performers? Yeah, there's quite a bit of theory on evolutionary algorithms. It, it started already in the 70s with, with the schema theorem. And that says the schema theorem states that in this process, the shorter the schemas are, the combinations of elements in the solution, in that bit string, in that uh, genetic string, the shorter they are, and the more powerful they are, the more strongly, the more strongly they actually affect the fitness of the organism, then more prominent they will be in future generations. They will, they will become more prevalent in the population. And that is a theoretical result. It's a schema theorem that shows that this happens in this mechanism. Mm-hmm. And since and how then, does, yeah. How does a short schema apply to a, a practical problem? What does that mean? Well, so a schema length means that you have well, so let's think of a genetic encoding, uh, for instance, a, a string of weights on a neural network. So mm-hmm. the schema means that a good neural network has this weight on this connection, this weight on this connection, and this weight on this connection. That's a mm-hmm. schema of length three. Okay. And it may be that, indeed, you have these kinds of interactions between weights in a neural network, and you have to set them right in order for the network to perform well. And And the schema theorem just says that if there are short, small segments of weights or segments of the neural network that are powerful, they are easier to find. Now, if, mm. if, the, if the schema covers a large number of weights, that's more difficult to find, obviously. It makes sense, right? So, mm-hmm. so you have to set more numbers correctly in order to see the benefit. 
And the schema theorem just says that if you have short schemas, easy ways of gaining the benefit, finding just three weights of the right values, that's going to be very easy to find and it will very quickly become prominent in the population. And from the point of view of biology, that makes sense. I mean, if there are some genes that are very short, I mean, just single genes instead of interaction with multiple genes, that's going to be very prominent and very quickly propagate through the population. And that's Mm -hmm. the mathematics of schema theorem just expresses that idea. Mm. And when we're training with evolutionary algorithms are... Does the is the schema length a constant, or is this does this method kind of zoom in and zoom out to different levels of resolution? Yes, exactly. It will do that. We don't know ahead of time what the schemas are like, so we okay. just we define the encoding, uh, and you kind of you try to put in as much insight into that encoding as possible. You try to define a search space where you believe first of all, that the solutions lie in that search space, and also that it's easy to move around in that search space. And, and that, that, is, that requires human thinking and creativity, but evolution will then find you the best combinations of those uh, elements in that search space. But encoding matters. Uh, in some cases, it is obvious, and, and it's given by the domain very much. Like in neural networks, it's an obvious encoding to have weights uh, put right. together into a string. But then when you think about it, some more, you realize that, hey, actually, the topology of the neural network matters as well. And then Mm -hmm. you want to have some way of encoding topology and letting evolution discover different topologies. And then you discover things like, well, if in order to make it easier to search this space, which now became much bigger because it's all the topologies in addition to just all the weight values, Mm -hmm. a clever idea is that let's start with a very small neural networks, a small search space. Initially, we just start with neural networks that connect inputs directly to the outputs, no hidden nodes at all. And Mm -hmm. let evolution run in that space for a while, find good, such simple networks. And then we'll add complexity. We add a hidden node and another hidden node. And then we add recurrent connections and gradually discover complexity as we go. And this principle, instead of starting with all kinds of topologies of neural networks as the initial population, if we start small, if we start simple and gradually complexify, evolution is much more powerful in finding these complex solutions. Hmm. So that's what I meant by being smart about how you encode it and how you let evolution search the space. It it makes a big difference. And this is one principle has turned out uh, over over and over again to be very useful. How complex have... How complex can you get with this technique? Like, can you, if you come up with uh, an encoding that can represent convolution layers and rectifying layers and the kinds of things that we do in, uh, you know, CNNs for computer vision, can this thing, you know, come up with, uh, you know, a very deep model, the, the types of models that we're using for object recognition nowadays, or is it more limited? Yes, it's a good question. So there's really been two approaches to doing this. And, and the first one I just described was that you have an encoding that in principle could encode anything, any kind of connectivity, and you mm-hmm. build up from that. And that is actually very good on tasks like the reinforcement learning problem where you have to define a custom kind of recurrency that retains just the right information over time in order to, for you to disambiguate the partially observable problem. But very recently, in the last two years or so, uh, maybe, yeah, two years or so, uh, another approach has emerged, and that's specifically to evolve deep learning architectures. Uh, And there's an interesting 
difference in that those architectures are composed of specific components. You mentioned, I don't different convolutional neural networks, LSTM networks, right. uh, dropout as a parameter, max pool layers, all kinds of structures now exist mm-hmm. that people compose these deep learning architectures from. And it now makes sense to do this a little differently because we know that there are some components that are useful. Well, let's give those components as, as, as a source material, raw material for evolution. And now you can come up with a mechanism that maybe operates in a couple of different levels. You, uh, you could evolve the weights, you could evolve the components, and then you could evolve the overall topology that's based on, on those components. And this is currently where the deep learning uh, neuroevolution is, evolving deep learning networks. There are mm-hmm. multiple approaches, but by and large, they do this. They they evolve the hyperparameters um, of those networks and uh, maybe the topology of the networks. But then the weights are trained using a supervised training set like image recognition you mentioned. So there's, there's a, still a, a big benefit from evolving those deep learning networks, even if you're applying it eventually to a supervised problem, because it's very hard to construct the right topology for your problem. Let, mm, let's, let's, uh, let evolution do that and then uh, use the training uh, to set the weights. Weights, there are millions and billions of weights, but potentially it's very hard for evolution to get every single one right if it needs to do a mutation to get the weight value right. Deep learning is much better to doing that, but the topology matters as well, and the architecture of the components matters as well, and hyperparameters matter, and that we can optimize using evolution. Mm, so help us understand. So what you just said was the... The evolution is better for the architectural, identifying the architectural solution, the connectivity and the types of layers and things like that. And traditional deep learning training techniques are better for the weights. Why exactly is that? You mentioned because there are a lot of weights, but I thought that was an advantage of the evolutionary approach. Well, again, so it's actually a very simple point that in um, if you are evolving the entire network, including the weights, then evolutionary operators need to set the weight values. And that means crossover or mutation. And mutation means that you are changing each weight randomly. And if you have a million weights, that's a very slow process. Mm-hmm. In contrast, something like deep learning, a backpropagation, stochastic gradient descent, every time you show an example, you can change every single weight. So there's a lot more parallelism, it's a lot, lot more efficient way of, of uh, changing the weight. Uh, so what we're saying here is if you've got training data, use traditional training techniques, gradient descent, which you know uses that training data to accelerate training. Yeah, um, exactly. And where you don't have training data is kind of at this higher level. Well, it seems like you kind of, if you have the training data, you should also be able to use that for the architectural stuff, but I, I, I guess we don't have techniques for doing that like gradient descent. That's where evolutionary comes in. Exactly. That's exactly the point. Yeah. Okay. Now, of course, people do research and try to break free of these restrictions. And you could, mm-hmm. for instance, use evolution for the weights as well, even mm-hmm. in deep learning networks. But there's, there's an interesting approach that allows you to do it. And that is that you don't evolve every single weight separately but mm-hmm. you evolve, say, patterns of weights. 
Whole and, evolution? Well, it's it's a different level of evolution. You could call it co-evolution, uh, co-evolution of different levels, co-evolution mm-hmm. of topology, co-evolution with with uh, components, and and then weights. But but the trick here is that instead of having to set each value independently using mutation crossover, you have some kind of a pattern that you are evolving, and then you that mm-hmm. pattern you use that pattern to derive the weight values. And in extreme, that pattern could be given by a different neural network, a separate neural network. Mm-hmm. So you are evolving a neural network whose outputs then give you the weight values. That technique is called uh, compositional pattern producing neural net, and, and it's been used to evolve these deep learning architectures. And, it, and this is an example of how you can still use evolution, even if you don't have supervised training data necessarily. You could still use a deep learning network with millions of weights, but you have mm. to use this kind of an indirect encoding of its weights, perhaps through another neural network. Mm. And and so when you're using uh, evolutionary algorithms to evolve the architecture and the connectivity of deep neural network or anything for that matter, uh, are you do, is is are you applying evolutionary algorithms hierarchically or that as an approach hierarchically? Like you know, first evolve the connectivity and separately evolve the the layers, or is it all done at, at once? All of that is possible, and all of that is under under research right now. <laughs> you know, we, I guess we I should have anticipated that. <laughs> yes. So yes, exactly. And you mentioned coevolution. That's a powerful approach in evolution, and that means that you have two evolutionary processes, two or more, going on at once, and they interact. So in this case, it would be that you evolve the module that might be a convolutional layer or some other or LSTM type of a module, and then you evolve a topology, how you connect them together. And Mm. that means that you have two populations. One of them encodes a different LSTM node, and the other one encodes how they are connected. Uh, Mm. And and, then you can evolve them at the same time and and evaluate them together as a single architecture, and then the individuals inherit the fitness of the entire architecture. And that's a very interesting approach. Uh, You could Mm -hmm. also do it differently if you have a if you have a way of assigning a fitness to, say, a single in LSTM node somehow, like maybe it's memory capacity or something, then you could evolve that first and uh, evolve a bunch of different maybe LSTM nodes for different kinds of fitness functions. Use those as raw material at a higher level evolution and do it sequentially. That's also mm-hmm. possible. But, it, but yeah, go ahead. It almost suggests that there's probably some analog for, for GANs, uh, generative adversarial networks like generative adversarial evolutionary algorithms or something like that is does that mean anything in this world yes exactly and that's actually how gans kind of got started and motivated that oh really yeah so it was possible to evolve input examples that broke the deep learning network that had been trained very well in a training set and 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 then jeff clune evolved these patterns that were Pretty much just noise, but the network still confidently claimed that oh, that's a dog, and and is this, this is like the school bus giraffe kind of example, that kind of thing. I'm not familiar with that example. School bus giraffe. What is that? I'm, I may be mixing up my objects and animals here, but there is some set of famous examples where, for whatever reason, if you give uh, you know one of the same famous object detection CNNs. Uh, picture of a zebra or a giraffe or something like that it confidently proclaims it to be a school bus oh i see i see yeah yeah there are many demonstrations of this same same problem that that sounds like it's one of them yes so you can 
mix the categories, but the most impressive demonstration to me is that there's an image that looks pretty much just noise. You cannot see anything in it, but mm. still the deep learning system somehow declares that to be, I don't know, a school bus <laughs> or uh, something else. Right. So, so, but this, the, the origin of that was that it was possible to evolve those images. It wasn't just that we look at, look at uh, bad mistakes in a training set, but evolved these images that we had no constraints of what they had to be. And they turned out to be pretty much just noise looking images, noise images. And evolution discovered that this is a way of getting the deep learning network to perform very poorly, <laughs> classifying ah, it confidently to something else. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting background. I didn't realize that. And, and from there on, um, I, the whole field of generally adversarial network studies, like how could we actually do this? How could we have an adversarial training, uh, a trainer mm -hmm. or supervisor, uh, so that the network could actually perform better? Because you could use those images to train it as well uh, mm -hmm. as just break it. And, um, and this is, uh, so this is a very close relation. And I think it's still uh, being explored. It's possible to evolve training sets and it's possible to evolve also these systems that are learning from them so that they become more robust and also they they develop internal representations that are more representative so we can use evolution to bias these learning systems in in a way we want um, make, make them more general make them interpretable and and more robust mm -hmm. interesting interesting i interrupted you earlier when you were about to talk about classes of problems for which evolutionary algorithms are particularly suited and not suited Right. So there's, of course, a lot of work in trying to expand the space of possible problems. Now, mm -hmm. we were comparing reinforcement learning with evolution. I would like to point out that reinforcement learning has a little bit different perspective and, and goal. The idea there is to model a learning of an individual, more or less during its lifetime. Uh, so as it's mm -hmm. living its life and it's performing, every step counts. And, and in essence, right. it's like an online method. Uh, the typical application of evolution is offline engineering type of application that you mm. do have you do have a simulator for instance of a of the system you're trying to or the environment for the system you're trying to evolve and you can fail miserably in some of these candidates mm -hmm. the only thing that counts is that in the end you have a, a a very well engineered system and and that is a different kind of a perspective you don't get penalized for for your exploration in evolution algorithms you only get evaluated in the final result Versus in reinforcement learning, it's a continual life, um, lifelong learning system, perhaps. Now, and that means makes sense. I mean, evolution is is an engineering approach. Can can be. We can evolve, for instance, um, controllers for finless rockets. Is one thing that we did. You couldn't possibly use it in a physical system because you would have to explode uh, hundreds of thousands of rockets. But if you have a simulator for that system, you can do anything you want with it. You can explore very wild solutions. And as a matter of fact, some of those wild solutions developed into really good solutions in the end. And in the end, we have a controller for a finless rocket that keeps it stable in a reliable way. And that, that's the kind of typical application uh, for, a, for an evolution algorithm system. Now, in, on the other hand, if you have an online system that needs to learn online while it's performing, that's not as easy to use evolution for that. You have to build extra machinery for it, but you can. That's the kind of a reinforcement learning system that reinforcement learning initially come, came from, but it has mm -hmm. also been to confuse everybody. <laughs> it has been used to do engineering design as well, just like evolution is, is used to do online learning, but that's not, the, <laughs> that's opposite to the origin. And that's, that's sort of the first application would be engineering versus online learning. Mm-hmm. You mentioned simulation, and that reminded me of a question that I had earlier. Is there a relationship in 
you know, particularly in the context of the trading work that you've done between Monte Carlo types of approaches, the evolutionary approaches? Yeah, so Monte Carlo's simulation means just that you randomize your domain and, and, let, uh, and generate new situations that way. Now, when you use it as a solution mechanism, you're banking on the idea that even randomized solutions are likely to be successful sometimes. So you could th- think of evolution as a, as a 2.0 of that, that you, you're actually mm-hmm. trying to learn from your mistakes. You're trying to learn from your, those trials, and that is using crossover on a good candidates and mutation on a good candidates and focus the search more. And, and that is, I think, a, a good way to, to formulate the relationship. You could even look at some of the evolutionary algorithm methods We've been talking about generic algorithms, which is crossover mutation-based. There are other evolution methods that are closer to something like Monte Carlo in that they will build a statistical model of the domain, which hmm. individual components, schemas, are how reliable they are in predicting the fitness. You form that kind of probabilistic model of your search space. And then when you construct new individuals, when you construct offspring, you don't do it based on crossover mutation, you do it statistically. You sample from that model. And, and it's still a population-based approach, in that sense, falls under the evolutionary algorithms, but it's closer to probabilistic reasoning and Monte Carlo methods and other statistical methods. And they okay. perform quite well. Those methods perform quite well, too. Oh, interesting, interesting. Uh, is there a, a simple way to kind of categorize the, or characterize, I should say, the you know, the various types of evolutionary algorithms or approaches or the, you know, the various, you know, tweaks that have evolved to the basic, you know, generic approach? Well, we can attempt to do it. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> researchers are very creative. I mean, whenever you Absolutely. come up with a category, <laughs> then they will cross the categories. To, and that's part of, part of how research works, too, that you will combine ideas across different approaches and categories. But genetic algorithms is one where the close connection to biology is obvious, crossover mutation. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are these uh, statistics-based approaches, like I mentioned, sometimes called estimation of distribution algorithms, where you estimate the probabilistic model of, of what works and then okay. sample from that. There are methods based on evolutionary strategy where you don't have crossover, but you have a small population and you're mostly using mutation to, to do the search, but you make the mutations intelligent. If you have a small population, you, you form, for instance, a covariance matrix of how your mutations co-vary. Try to find mm-hmm. these interactions specifically, and then use that uh, that uh, model of the interactions to to construct new individuals. There's differential evolution. There's there's uh, different buzzwords. I, I can give you a lot of these, <laughs> but but there's there's a large number of them, and um, they are based on sometimes letting go of the biological analogy mm-hmm. and instead focusing on the idea that what if you do have a population? How could you utilize the information in that population to to construct new individuals uh, better. Mm-hmm. And that, that is kind of the general umbrella of evolutionary algorithms. And you could even think of an interesting direction uh, trying to go towards the biology, going the opposite direction. I, I'm talking about abstracting into probabilistic reasoning, uh, probabilistic and stochastic search. But mm-hmm. you could also go towards biology. And, and, and there's an interesting idea. Try to take some ideas that are more biological, for instance, indirect encoding. The fact that in biology, DNA 
the actual uh, ribonucleic acid does not really specify the full individual. There's a large network of interactions uh, mm-hmm. that come after, after generating the proteins from the DNA and RNA. So genetic regulatory networks are a huge part of biological construction from the DNA to an individual. And mm-hmm. currently, we are more, pretty much missing that in these algorithms. So there's a lot of complexity in, in this kind of indirect encoding. There are approaches that try to invoke genetic regulatory networks. There are approaches that are trying to include a developmental phase, which is also big in biology. So after the individual is constructed, after it's born, there's usually a period of learning uh, that happens, interaction with the environment, and that then constructs the final individual for instance, human brain, we have 30,000 genes maybe in the genome. There's no way the brain can be specified except at a coarse kind of instructive level, pattern level. Mm-hmm. Most of the brain structure is actually learned in an interaction with the environment. Evolution just produces a starting point for that learning. Mm-hmm. So combining learning and evolution that way is fundamentally biological, and it's also something that we should be looking into, and we are looking into it. People are looking into it. Wow. This is really a fascinating area. For folks that want to dig in a little bit deeper or learn more, where is the best place to start? Are there canonical papers they should start at? Is there a resource that uh, you'd like to recommend people take a look at? Mm, sure. There there are some classic books uh, that are about evolutionary algorithms and you can find genetic algorithm evolution computation books uh, that are textbooks. Holland, Mitchell, Goldberg, for instance, they tend to be a little bit old right now because the field is developing very rapidly. It has been explosive growth. But the typical sources on uh, Scholapedia, for instance, and then the tutorials that appear in the main conferences, I think would be a great source. There Mm -hmm. will be actually a genetic and evolution computation conference, GECO, starts tomorrow, as a matter of fact, in Berlin. Oh, wow. And uh, the first two days are tutorials. And lots of those tutorials are online, even some of the videos about the tutorials online. And I think that those are really a great way to get started. It is, it is a big field and in, in a very diverse field. It's kind of interesting because evolution drives on diversity. The algorithms drive on diversity, but the field is also tremendously diverse. Mm-hmm. So, so that is a bit of a challenge that you may, you may get lost in all this terminology and all the different approaches. But, and that's why I'm recommending that maybe starting from one of the de- textbooks, even if it's a little bit older, uh, mm-hmm. is a good idea that gives you the perspective. Uh, and then looking at the tutorials and maybe there on it, it's, uh, you should have access to a lot of literature on, on the internet. Hmm. Are there tools and, and frameworks or do the, you know, the, the deep learning frameworks, the tensor flows of the world and the like, do they support have any kind of support for evolutionary algorithms or is, you know, are folks rolling their own? Yeah. So there's support. Uh, TensorFlow, I don't think currently has evolution component, but it is likely that it will in the future. It's an open source project and people are contributing to it. So it's very likely to happen. There's, for, in- for instance, ECJ, evolution computation in Java. That's a, a big effort. George Mason University, um, who, and that software includes many different evolution algorithms. And that, I think, would, is currently the best source to get started with, software system okay. to get started with. Yeah. Great, great. Well, to wrap things up, can you let folks know what's the best way to check in on you or to get in touch <laughs> with you? 
Well, I have a name that's very easy to find if you spell it correctly. <laughs> if you can so. figure out the spelling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I have a website at uh, UT Austin uh, where my, much of my research from my whole career is, is always there. I try to keep that up to, up to speed. And okay. of course, Sentient uh, itself has a <clears throat> set of blog posts and, and, and uh, web pages describing the technology we are developing here, which is evolution computation and, and deep learning. So those sites are, are usually quite well up to date. And, and then we have pointers to more material that you can use those as a, a starting point. Okay, great. And we'll link to both of those in the show notes. Very good. Thank you. All right. Well, Risto, thank you very much. This was amazing. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. And of course, for your ongoing feedback and support. For the notes for this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 47. I've got a quick favor to ask. If you enjoy the podcast, and especially if you like this episode, please take a moment to jump on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We love to read these, and it lets others know that the podcast is worth tuning into. Another thanks to this week's sponsor, Cloudera. For more information on their data science workbench or to schedule your demo and get a drone, visit twimlai.com slash cloudera. I'd also like to send a huge shout out to friend of the show, Hillary Mason, whose company Fast Forward Labs was acquired by Cloudera just last week. For more on Hillary and Fast Forward Labs, check out my interview with her at twimlai.com slash talk slash 11 and my interview with the former president of that company, Catherine Hume at twimlai.com slash talk slash 20. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.